it's obvious from the disarray that China is in now that they didn't take the time to actually make a plan for the transition, which is shocking. Uh, and when you combine this with a lot of other mismanagement of the economy over the past decade, it really makes us all question the much vaunted competence of decision-making in China. They, there's no longer this aura of this highly competent leadership in China. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary people from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Kevin Coldine, to host a series of in-depth conversations to help uncover and explain new ideas to make you a better investor. In the series, Kevin will be speaking to authors of new books and research papers to better understand the global economy and the dynamics that shape it so that we can all successfully navigate the challenges within it. And with that, please welcome Kevin Coldiron. All right. Uh, thank you, Niels, and welcome, everyone. Um, we've got a very important show for you today. Our guest is Susan Shirk. Uh, one of today's most influential experts on U.S.-China relations and Chinese politics. Um, Susan first visited China in 1971, and she's been researching, teaching, and engaging with China ever since, including um, several years as Deputy uh, Assistant Secretary of State in the East Asia Bureau for the Clinton administration. Um, she's currently a research professor at University of California, San Diego, and chair of their 21st Century China Center. She's joining us today to talk about her illuminating new book called Overreach, How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise. So Susan Shirk, thanks so much for joining us today and uh, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Kevin. Great to be here. So I, you first visited China over 50 years ago, and I was kind of poking through your background, and I noticed that you had actually attended a critical language program at Princeton in the 60s, and I was wondering, is that where you first started studying the, the country and language? Well, I went to Mount Holyoke College, uh, and before I went to college, I had the opportunity to be a 
an exchange student in Japan. So that stimulated my interest in Asia. And then I started taking some Asian history and politics courses at Mount Holyoke, but they didn't have any opportunity to study language. So when this opportunity to be a critical languages student at Princeton, which at the time was still an all-male school, uh, opened up, I certainly uh, leapt at the chance. It had a lot of uh, appeal in many respects, and I, that's where I started studying Chinese. Actually, I started the summer before at Columbia because I grew up on Long Island, and so I took an intensive summer course with the famous Loretta Pan, uh, one of the most famous Chinese teachers ever, and she was at Columbia, and that's where I started and then continued at Princeton. Yeah, I just, I, I was really curious about that because, you know, that's, that is a, a quite a while ago, and China was an utterly different place then. It wasn't integrated in the global economy. It was, um, you know, not, not really, I guess, on the radar screen. And wh- why, did you, why did you choose China back then? Well, I started off with a focus on Japan, but then so much of the history of Japan actually takes us back to China. And so I just became fascinated with China. And this was in the 1960s, and Mao's China was so mysterious. So I thought it was you know, fascinating. And the Cultural Revolution started. What was that all about? So, um, but I do look back and think it was very odd to study a country that I might never have had the chance to visit. It would be like studying the moon. Uh, But I was so fortunate that just when I was a PhD student doing my dissertation research in Hong Kong, where I interviewed refugees from the mainland China, uh, China opened up and I was fortunate enough to be in the first group of Americans to go into China after the ping pong team. So we were actually in China for a month, our group of students, uh, PhD students, we were there the same time Henry Kissinger came to set up the Nixon visit. Wow. And how does it, I mean, you said Princeton was all male when you were there in the, in the 60s. I mean, what, how did it feel being a woman visiting, a Western woman visiting China in 1971? Where, how were you treated? China was a place that treated women very differently, I'd say, from Japan and Korea. And I think that's uh, really Communist Party-ruled systems do have a higher participation in higher education and just education more broadly for women and uh, career opportunities uh, or job assignment, which is what it was then, was pretty good for women. It, it was not a terribly sexist place. Uh, it's probably 
I mean, of course, the situation today is a lot more complex. So, you know, your history with China is so extensive that I think if we did the usual career overview, that that might (laughs) consume our whole hour. So I thought perhaps we could just jump to the end and ask you to explain what the 21st Century China Center is and, and what your role before we move on to the book. Oh, well, thanks so much for asking me about it because our center has probably the largest concentration of scholars studying contemporary China of any Chinese uh, American university right now. And we're quite unique in that we're both an academic research center and a think tank. So our goal is to do cutting-edge research. We have something called the China Data Lab because we do a lot of empirical work in data of all sorts, uh, media data, surveys, uh, economic data, uh, data on policy output, the Chinese system, and do it in a very rigorous way. And then we try to translate that knowledge into recommendations for wiser policy from the United States and actually from China as well. So a lot of our listeners, as you know, are in the financial markets. Is is that data something that they could go to your your center and, and access and use? Yes, some of it certainly is. And we have uh, blog posts. For example, my colleague, Victor Schur, who probably is well known to investors in China, um, he has a, an amazing database of Chinese politicians, of central committee members, of uh, provincial party committee members going all the way back. And uh, people can play with that data. Um, uh, and we have a lot of uh, other types of data that are available, or you can always contact the researcher and ask for permission. Let's talk about your book. Why did you decide to write this book? Um, it's very extensive. I mean, how, how long did it take you to, to, to finish it? Well, I actually started the research back around 2006 because that's when things changed in Chinese policy, both foreign policy and domestic policy. Um, And up until that time, U.S.-China relations and China's relations with its neighbors and the rest of the world were going pretty well uh, due to Chinese foreign policy of restraint. Uh, Chinese leaders, Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin, and Hu Jintao during his first term had a, a very good understanding that China's rapid rise as an economic and military power would inevitably create these perceptions that China was a threat. So uh, they saw their challenge was how do they 
show other countries and people in those countries that China wasn't a threat because its intentions were friendly, were benign. So they, uh, they did a pretty good job of it. And, uh, you know, they opened up all sorts of trade agreements with their neighbors. They became the largest trading partner of pretty much all countries in Asia. Uh, and they took a pretty flexible, pragmatic attitude toward foreign policy, with the exception of relations with Japan and Taiwan, which were always fraught because of being hot-button issues of popular nationalism. So, But that changed in the mid-2000s. Uh, China's civilian maritime agencies, of all eight or nine of them, started shoving, pushing around the fishing boats and drilling rigs of other claimants in the South China Sea. Uh, and that was very puzzling to me because the South China Sea hadn't been a focal point of popular nationalism. There was very little attention paid to it. So I was very puzzled by why uh, that had, uh, why China was behaving that way in the South China Sea. And that really had changed the narrative about what kind of rising power China was. People started seeing China as much more threatening. And at the same time, domestic policy also had uh, changed. It became, uh, social control became tighter with grid management of society, censorship tightened up of the internet and commercial media after a period which had been like peak freedom of information in China. This was right before the Olympics, and it was before the global financial crisis. So that was a puzzle to me, and I uh, took, started doing research, did a lot of interviewing in China. One of my main source, really, is talking to all sorts of uh, political people, party people, uh, business people, journalists, to try to understand what explained this sharp change in Chinese policy. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about that because the book really is peppered with just, you know, um, and you say interviews a, a lot. And my question was, you know, uh, I, I presume these are just people that you've met over the years through your various um, work there. But is that, were they anxious to talk to you? In other words, did they want to get their point of view across or were they nervous um, does that put them in any at any risk with the book coming out? Can can people sort of back back out who who they are and you know because some of them are you know critical of of Xi Jinping in the direction of the country. Not all, but certainly some. Well, I'm always very careful not to identify people. And I have been interviewing Chinese since 
the late 1960s for my research. And I'm happy to say that nobody's ever gotten into trouble because of talking to me. I'm extremely um, protective of my sources. And as social scientists, we have that obligation. And I, it really is important to me. So I'm very, very careful about that. So let's, I, I, I want to circle back to that at some point, but let's talk about the evolution of the control regime in China. You said sort of things started changing in 2006, and there's a number of kind of ironies that go through the book. And one of them, to me anyway, was that this change emerged under um, Hu Jintao, who you described as in some sense kind of a, a weak leader, um, uh, and he didn't, that, that power was dispersed um, uh, through kind of different bases that represented the different, I guess, functions of the Politburo and the people on the Politburo, what they controlled. So you had a situation where there was, it was a decentralized leadership, not a strong authoritarian figure um, at the top of it, power dispersed. How did this, you know, beginnings of overreach emerge in what seems like a, not exactly say a hands-off um, approach to governing, but certainly not the kind of concentrated power that we see under Xi Jinping. Yes, well, um, it is probably the most surprising thing people who read my book will learn, which is how did we get to where we are today? And today we have Xi Jinping who rules... Uh, like a personalistic uh, dictator, really, uh, with a cult of personality and relying just on a small circle of advisors whom he's known for years and uh, not paying much attention to the professionals in the government or even in the party. And uh, so power is very centralized, very concentrated. And that uh, leads to overreach, uh, which is the title of the book and the concept which the book is all about, which is taking things too far, doing them in a very exaggerated way in a manner that actually snaps back to harm yourself that's costly to yourself. So, um, but, so this type of dynamic of power concentration, I explain how that leads to overreach, but remarkably, it actually started under a very different leadership system of collective leadership in which China was ruled by a nine-man political oligarchy of senior leaders in the party and the standing committee, each of them responsible for a particular portfolio of um, bureaucracies. And these bureaucratic interests became very hived off from one another. And uh, the barons at the top, they're very protective of their own uh, interest groups and started hyping international threats and domestic threats 
in order to get more bigger budgets and more bureaucratic influence for the agencies they were in charge of. And uh, the what I call the control coalition, the internal police, the public security bureaucracies, the state security bureaucracies, the uh, military, the paramilitary people's armed police, uh, the propaganda department, led by the security czar Zhou Yun Kang, um, they basically hijacked Chinese policy and became very, very powerful by hyping these threats. Also, the state agencies in charge of the economy, who uh, they got into a kind of log roll with the control bureaucracy because they all, you know, these bureaucracies were, were protective of the state-owned enterprises and less supportive of the private enterprises. They wanted the state to start playing, once again, a more active role in guiding the economy, especially to develop China's indigenous technology. So um, it's a complicated story, um, which I try to make clear and vivid, but at the end of Hu Jintao's 10 years in office, China was very corrupt because each one of these barons was able to uh, collect a lot of rents, a lot of bribes, because they were so powerful and had all this patronage to promote um, other officials subordinate to them. And it was very corrupt, and you also had open splits in the leadership, as we saw in that drama with Bo Xilai, the Chongqing Party Secretary, in 2012. Um, so that enabled Xi Jinping to make the case for a more concentrated leadership system. And other party leaders agreed with that at the uh, times. I wonder if, so that, that's a really, I think, clear um, summary. And as, maybe if I could just repeat it back to you and see if you, uh, you agree with my summary. So you, you use this concept log rolling, which I hadn't heard before. And my interpretation was that, you know, you've got these nine oligarchs, these nine portfolios of, of power, and there's this kind of implicit agreement that, hey, I won't, I'll agree to give you the resources, let you do what you want, as long as you agree to let me do what I want. So you have kind of nine almost separate silos of power that were, were in some sense, no checks and balances between them. And so within each silo, there was this kind of almost like mini overreach of their particular portfolio, um, which was justified based on, you know, hyped internal and external threats. So that that is kind of the, the beginnings of overreach. Is that right? That is right. And I, of course, log rolling is a term we usually use in a legislative setting, especially in the U.S. Congress. So, um, but it is as you describe it, which is trading 
support for one another's projects, not checking them. That's the important thing. There were no mutual checks. I mean, they could have served as vetoes of one another, but they didn't do that. And the main reason they didn't do that is they were the cohesion at the top, maintaining this facade of unity among China's leaders is so important because public splits in the leadership could bring down the whole house of cards because most authoritarian regimes fall top down, not bottom up. They fall because of power struggles, splits, open splits in the leadership, which then emboldens the public to come out on the street. And that's what happened in Tiananmen in 1989. So Xi Jinping takes over in 2012, and he's taking over a situation where you've got these I'm using nine, but you've got these diff- different pol- uh, power bases that have been kind of unchecked. Corruption has been has spread, and presumably there's dissatisfaction with this. So he comes in and says, "I'm going to clean up," and he starts um, concentrating power, tackling corruption, uh, purging the top generals of the military, and. Um, my sense is that that was quite like an internally, domestically popular move uh, initially. Is that right? That is right. And the anti-corruption campaign was extremely popular among the public. And in fact, Xi Jinping has been popular with the public right up until uh, recently. And there due mostly to his overreaching in the zero-COVID extreme uh, method, which the public finally had was fed up with. Um, but up until that time, our surveys at China Day Lab indicated that Xi's popularity was pretty strong. Uh, but recently, uh, the public has started to uh, want at least some modification in the zero COVID approach. But um, yeah, among the, among the leadership, the other leaders, of course, this concentration of power, originally they thought it was needed and it would benefit all of them. And she came in acting as if all of the interest groups were going to um, uh, be supported by him. He actually issued a very market-oriented economic reform document back in 2013, uh, most of which has just been left as words on paper, not been carried out. But originally, everyone was very excited, and they thought, well, now we've got a strong reformist leader like Deng Xiaoping, and we're going to see another wave of market reform of investors, both international and domestic, were quite excited about that. But in the end, Xi Jinping concentrated instead on 
uh, military reform, spent a huge amount of time on that, and on shoring up the loyalty of Communist Party members to the party and to him personally. And so this anti-corruption campaign was also a purge, a purge of rivals, real and imagined, to Xi Jinping. And according to a recent statistics from the uh, Party Discipline Commission, uh, almost 5 million officials have been investigated and disciplined um, since the start of the campaign in 2013. And this purge continues up until the present date. It's become what Zbigniew Brzezinski called in talking about the Soviet Union, a permanent purge. The purge is now going after the internal security officials and the um, discipline commission officials who had been so trusted by Xi Jinping that they did the investigations and the prosecutions of the first rounds of uh, uh, purge against senior officials. And, but now they themselves have been put in prison for life with suspended death sentences because ultimately she uh, loses confidence in the loyalty of these people who proclaim themselves to be completely loyal to him. Um, you know, Mao said to Ho Chi Minh in the 1960s, when your followers praise you, you know that you cannot believe them. And obviously Xi Jinping also feels that same kind of suspicion when you put so much pressure on other political officials to show how loyal they are and express that loyalty through uh, praising you and through their actions and carrying out your policies, bandwagoning on your policies, then, um, of course, you suspect that they're not sincere. They're doing it to save their own skin. It's fascinating. I mean, there's so many directions we could take this conversation, but, you know, so you, in, in terms of like the, how, how overreach developed, it started as, you know, with log rolling between different power bases. And now you have, like you said, this, what you call bandwagoning or overcompliance, this kind of desperation to, you know, she utters something and then people, you know, say, okay, we've got to do that, but we've got to do even more. So you get policies enacted that maybe he didn't even want to enact in the first place, but it's a result of this desperation to show uh, this overcompliance or, or bandwagoning. Um, could you give us a couple examples, like specific examples of policies you think that where overreach might not even represent what she had originally wanted? Well, I think that's a matter of degree. I, I think these. I think most Chinese officials are 
really good at trying to figure out what the leader wants. You know, there's this esoteric language of ideological language of slogans, much of it Marxist now. Um, as Kevin Rudd has reminded us, Xi Jinping is immersed in Marxist ideology. Um, so other officials figure out what direction Xi Jinping is heading in, and then, as you say, they overdo the way they carry it out. They, first of all, want to be first on the bandwagon, and then they take it to an extreme degree. So I'd say two examples. One, this so-called wolf warrior diplomacy, um, which is Chinese diplomats going right up to the foreign minister, state counselor, uh, national security advisor themselves, who uh, gush praise for Xi Jinping and then rudely attack other countries in a way that is not at all diplomatic um, because it's a performance, a performance for the leader. It, they're really performing for Beijing they're not trying to communicate with the people in the other country that they are visiting or uh, based in. And we know that Xi Jinping expressed approval, encouraged this. And it, by the way, a lot of this is done on Twitter, uh, a social media which is blocked inside China but uh, still, there are many people who manage to get to it uh, by using VPN. So anyway, uh, I think wolf warrior diplomacy, especially with the during COVID, when China was giving masks and other medical um, supplies to other countries to help them in the early stages of the pandemic. And there, uh, the ambassador in that country insisted that the leaders of that country come out with television cameras uh, to say how much they appreciated China's help, how great China was, and if possible, to endorse Chinese policies regarding Taiwan or Xinjiang or some other essentially domestic issues. So I'd say wolf warrior diplomacy is an example of that overcompliance. And the other one that's just a textbook case of what Deng Xiaoping and criticizing the Mao era talked about the overconcentration of authority and arbitrary decision making and then leading to tragedies like the Great Leap Forward and Cultural Revolution. But now we have the tragedy of zero COVID. I mean, local officials during this period in which uh, Xi Jinping made support 
for zero COVID, a kind of totem of loyalty to him. He made all the other um, leaders of the in the standing committee be stand up and declare their support of this arm in arm with him. And then other uh, local officials, they were the ones who were under pressure to carry it out. And what that meant, of course, was so costly, all of this regular uh, testing and quarantining and the lockdowns and local governments have gone broke uh, doing this. And the local officials, of course, have become very unpopular with local citizens because of it. So, you know, it looks, unfortunately, all these guys in their hazmat suits uh, rounding up people into lockdowns doesn't look that different uh, than the Great Leap Forward in the Mao era in 1958-59 when people were rounded up to go into uh, collective farms. And that's an episode where, what, 35 million people were estimated to have right. died. Were you... the, the So you talk about a... There's, you know, protests in China are not, you know... They're not rare. You said there's thousands each year, and there's a kind of a textbook for text or a playbook, sorry, for for dealing with them, which is, you know, um, express sympathy for the protesters, satisfy some of their demands, blame the local authorities, and then throw the ringleaders of the protest in jail. Um, was that playbook initially tried with the COVID protests um, and then failed? Or did did they emerge in kind of a different way? No, actually, it was, it has been pretty much, well, it's been followed to a certain extent with the COVID protests in the sense that um, people will be imprisoned for their activities, for sure. The You know, the so-called ringleaders or the people who appeared to have emerged as informal leaders. Uh, But what hasn't happened, uh, other than one thing that Xi Jinping said at a meeting with some European leaders about the protests, he did mention the protests as being caused by the frustrations of young people about... um, the epidemic or, you know, uh, so he acknowledged they occurred. But so far, that's the only time Xi Jinping or any senior leader has really acknowledged the protests. So that is that is very different. I mean, eventually... Sorry, I, I, I explain that. That's very different in the sense that... How is that? Earlier, how is that? Prote- earlier protests were smaller. They were not nationwide. These protests um, against the extreme zero COVID um, lockdowns were in, I think, 30-some-odd cities. That's still not that many compared to Tiananmen, which was 
130 or 150 cities. But it was the first time since Tiananmen that you had nationwide protests against a policy of the central government. Previous ones in the preceding decades have been local issues. You know, a chemical plant being built um, and leading to environmental damage or um, some actions by local officials that people didn't like. But this is uh, a broader kind of protest than the ones we've had up until now. You say that, uh, I found this fascinating, that the public under Xi has been sort of, quote, trained in the sense, and this is, this is my wording, that because there's no rule of law, the public knows that unless they stir up trouble, their grievances aren't going to be addressed. So it's kind of a, it's another one of those ironies that run through the book that, you know, they, <laughs> there's this domestic control regime that wants to stamp down on protests yet by kind of, by not having rule of law, you, you create a situation where protests are kind of the only way to, <laughs> to get your voice heard. Absolutely. And now, uh, and we see that in spades with these protests against zero COVID because, you know, there had been a lot of rumblings, a lot of criticism by public health professionals um, and a lot of discussion, sub rosa discussion in China about the problems with the uh, Xi Jinping's zero COVID, for one thing, all the resources, the human resources and the money were going into constant testing and quarantining and not into vaccinations. So well, that why left is that? Um, what, is there's, I, what I've read is that there's a cultural resistance to vaccinations. Is that just I, It's that a puzzle. True? I don't think we know the answer to this. I mean, there's resistance to vaccinations everywhere. People were being coerced to stand in long lines in all type of weather to get tested almost every day and were forced to uh, into collective quarantine. I've seen recently a graph of the collective quarantine numbers going into the millions, and the vast majority of those people, almost all of them, were simply contacts of people who had tested positive. And tested positive some most of the time with no symptoms. So these were people being rounded up just because there were contacts or even secondary contacts. It was crazy. And the lack of uh, pressure to be vaccinated, you know, why not make a really big push? to get everybody vaccinated, especially the older population. 
presumably, um, you know, if the testing was a kind of bandwagoning or overreaction to yes. she's saying zero COVID, presumably if he said, hey, everyone should be vaccinated, then you would get the same fa- effect kind of manifesting there that all of a sudden, you know, we'd be rounding up people and vaccinating which would have been uh, much better because they would have been prepared for the transition. It's obvious by from the disarray that China is in now that they didn't take the time to actually make a plan for the transition, which is shocking. Uh, and when you combine this with a lot of other mismanagement of the economy over the past decade, it really makes us all question the much vaunted competence of decision-making in China. They, there's no longer this aura of this highly competent leadership in China. Yeah, it's... It, it's funny because I've, I'm sure I've, you've been in this position way more times than me, but I think if you kind of roll back the clock 10 or 15 years ago, everyone's been at a dinner party where someone, you know, is like, ah, if we just had a, a little, you know, a little bit of benign dictatorship, you know, we could get bridges built, schools sorted, you know, we look what China does, you know, and there was this envy in the West of their ability to get things done. And, you know, contrasted with a seeming inability, particularly here in America, to, to get things done. And now, you know, we're 10 years later, that's utterly reversed, um, I, I think. I mean, it, no one looks at China and says, gee, we want to, to emulate their model, which is ironic because you said Xi Jinping entered office wanting to tell China's story well. And what I kept thinking to myself is, well, the, the story was told best when they didn't tell the story. In other words, you know, in the in the early days where they just went about their business of integrating into the global economy and and not really being overly sensitive about criticism of their domestic policy, people kind of maybe didn't see them entirely benign, but they were like, hey, maybe this can be like Japan or Korea, that over time they could become a more open society and folded into the international community. And now, ironically, I think it, my sense was that the more she wanted people to respect China, the less people have. Do you, do you agree with that? Uh, th- I think that's a really <clears throat> very astute observation. And it's what makes me really um, frustrated and sad about the trajectory that China and U.S.-China relations are on right now because for so much of my whole career studying China, China has been rising peacefully. I mean, that's why the subtitle is How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise. For one thing, I want people to remember that China hasn't always been the way it is now, and that it was rising peacefully, and that there's this possibility for China if its decision makers exercised restraint. 
and tried to create a system of governance that was responsive to its population, which is now a very large middle class that travels abroad, that sends their children to study abroad. Um, you know, what they want is a modern life, at not uh, a totalitarian dictatorship. How can China demonstrate to the world that if it, if it wanted to, and it clearly it doesn't at the moment, but at some point if it wanted to, how could it demonstrate to the world that it's back to a peaceful rise? Because it strikes me that once she has said, has eliminated these institutional constraints on, say, turnover of power, he's centralized um, control, you would have to go kind of one step further than where they were already at to say, you know, we're serious about this. Is ironically, they would have to take deeper steps toward democracy than they would have had to have taken now, I think, to demonstrate to the world that they were serious about a peaceful rise. I mean, is there a path in your mind that China can demonstrate to the, the rest of the world that its intentions are peaceful? Well, you know, in um, my last chapter... I, that's where I get to policy recommendations to Beijing as well as to Washington. And I make some suggestions that to Beijing that people may think are, you know, naive and impossible. But I have seen over the many years I've been studying China, I've seen some pretty dramatic turnarounds. So, I don't think they're, they're certainly not impossible. I mean, Xi Jinping holds a lot of power in his hand. So he has the ability to make these turnarounds. So I'll just mention a couple. One is close the camps in Xinjiang. That would be huge. Let people, the International Committee of the Red Cross and other international observers come in and confirm that, yes, they're still trying to uh, sinicize the Muslim population in Xinjiang, but they're not forcing them into thought reform camps. That would be big. Another one is to resume dialogue with Taiwan's leaders to try to uh, preserve something of, well, uh, preserve the interdependence, the economic interdependence of Taiwan and the mainland, and to, from their perspective, try to prevent the... Taiwan authorities from declaring independence. You know, Hu Jintao did that. You know, they had a lot of dialogue with Taiwan uh, leaders and they strengthened the direct links in transport and commerce between the two sides and uh, tried to kind of win the hearts and minds of the Taiwan people. I mean, that will be extremely difficult, especially after 
Beijing's takeover of Hong Kong. But it could, you know, it's something that certainly they could do. It, you say in the book that over time, as, as the control regime has strengthened, that fewer and fewer people are willing to essentially give feedback to, to Xi, to give him any bad news. Um, so how, if he was going to pivot like that, what would uh, trigger it? Well, yeah. Does he know how people in the country view him? That's one of the greatest benefits of elections. Elections are a good indicator of how the public views the government. So they do, they try to do surveys. They have all sorts of internal methods, none of which I think are really very reliable. Um, So, uh, but that was the interesting question after the 20th Party Congress that occurred in October when Xi Jinping got his third term. Some people thought, okay, this is it. This is the high point. Xi Jinping is riding high. He's so confident, and he's going to continue in the same direction that he was headed in in before. I felt, in some sense, that he needed to restore confidence after the 20th Party Congress uh, because he had broken all the rules, surround, fired anybody who might question his judgment. Uh, he had embarrassed Hu Jintao by leading him out of the meeting you know, and now with zero COVID and having to turn on a dime to reverse the policy that just weeks before he and others were saying was the symbol of his leadership because of protests, I think he and the economy is in such bad shape because of uh, his own actions as well as other secular trends. So I think he does feel a need to restore international confidence and domestic confidence, which could be uh, a motivating factor in a kind of uh, course correction and some moderation in Xi's policies. But, you know, it's hard to know, very hard to predict, and I'll be very interested to see whether or not, well, actually, they just had the big national economic conference and they're trying to persuade private business people to have confidence in the government again, which will be very difficult given the way that Beijing and Xi Jinping has pummeled them uh, beginning in 2020, 2021. Yeah, and we didn't get to talk about that, but it, it really struck me as I don't, how you can, there's no, there's no precedent for trying to have a, an open capitalist economy that, with also a, a domestic control regime. I don't know how you pull that off. I don't know how you encourage entrepreneurs to start businesses when they know as soon as they become powerful, they're in danger. I, I, I wonder, I, I know we're, we're coming up at the end of time here, and I want to maybe just 
ask a couple personal questions to you if you're comfortable with them. I mean, I know you're teaching a course in China that you have been for a while. And um, are you, do you remain comfortable doing that? I mean, would you, if the company, a country opened up, would you go back over and teach in person? Would you feel at risk in any way? I mean, given that the the book is quite openly critical of of China and they've been, you know, they've, uh, they don't, they haven't, uh, they've been very sensitive to those things. I'm pretty optimistic that they won't try to prevent me from returning to China. I think there are many people in China, including some senior officials whom I have known for a long time, who know that my um, my views of China and my hopes for U.S.-China relations are basically that I'm hoping for the best for the Chinese people and for Chinese society and for America's uh, ability to benefit by cooperation with China and interdependence with China. I've been rather outspoken uh, criticizing U.S. policy for overreacting to China's overreach, especially in the tech restrictions and economic restrictions and human capital visas for Chinese students and visiting scholars. So um, I think people know me, you know, because I've been going to China for so long. I'm so old. Uh, And so I'm not really too worried about them shutting me out. But if they do, they do. You know, I'm not interested in self-censoring myself at this stage in my life. Will the senior people in China read your book, do you think? Uh, I don't know. It's, of course, not going to be translated into Chinese and published on the mainland. It's much too sensitive for that. My book, Fragile Superpower, was published in Taiwan. So there was a Chinese edition with different characters, but... um, and published in Japan and other countries. So um, I don't know. I think they'll probably learn what's in the book, even if they don't read it. Um, And I have to say that um, so far, what I've heard from people in China is that people are aware of the book and interested in it and... Um, you know, so I'll, I'll have to go and find out. But yes, I'm very keen to go. I've been invited to give a talk in Hong Kong in February, and I'm going to try to go to the mainland if uh, there's no quarantine requirement. Well, uh, yeah, I certainly... Uh 
hope you are able to go back again. And I, I think the book is not only an interesting read, but really just a service to people here who, you know, we all struggle to really understand what's going on in China to have someone with such an intimate knowledge of the culture and the politics write about it um, and write about it, like you say, in a way ultimately that, you know, with the best interests of both countries um, in mind, I think that's, that's a real service to everyone. So I wanted to thank you for writing the book and I wanted to thank you for taking the time to come and talk about it with us. I really appreciate it. And I, I wish you all the best. Thanks so much, Kevin. And uh, thanks for giving me this opportunity. Okay. And with that, I'll pass it back over to Niels. Thank you so much, Susan and Kevin, for an amazing look into the evolution of China in the past couple of decades and essentially how they got to where they are today and the derailing of their peaceful rise. Susan had some extraordinary insights to share, which are very important because I think that if we don't understand China and where it's heading, it's hard to predict the future of the rest of the world. To me, it was frightening to hear how centralized the control in China is now, and how in the past 10 years or so, 5 million people have been purged under President Xi. I mean, that's the size of the Danish population. The whole concept of log rolling and how the nine or so portfolios of power are now operating without any checks and balances was fascinating to learn about, but also to hear that President Xi essentially was popular with the people until recently when COVID restrictions simply started to overreach. And finally, it was interesting to hear some of Susan's proposals to China as to how they could move back to a path that the rest of the world could start to trust again. Make sure you go and follow Susan and Kevin's work, as well as getting a copy of their books, because as you can tell from today's conversation, some of these ideas and topics are not being discussed enough on mainstream media. From Kevin and me, Thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.